Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series where we bring you conversations with authors all over this COVID-affected world. (laughs) Um, Literature doesn't stop, even though everything else is uh, wonky and haywire. And uh, today is no exception. We've got another fantastic conversation for a debut memoir. I'm really excited about this one. This is going to be so much fun. You guys are going to enjoy this conversation a lot. Um, Before I introduce our guests, I just want to say a few words about Skylight. So if you're not familiar with us, Skylight Books is an independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. Um, I am Maddie Gobo, the events manager there. Uh, Right now, the store is open every day from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with a mask and social distancing and all the weird stuff that we do now to keep each other safe. Um, We also fill online orders and do curbside pickup. Uh, You can order through our website at skylightbooks.com. We definitely highly, highly encourage you to get out there and get your holiday shopping done early this year. We also encourage you to shop local. Um, I'm not going to say the name of the bad website, but you know it's a bad website and you shouldn't be spending your money there, especially now um, that all the things that we love are in danger. The best way that you can keep the places you love alive is by shopping at them spending your money there give us your give us your dollars um and and it'll help us stick around and keep doing this work that is so important to our community um so yeah please shop indie shop local this holiday season and shop early 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 all right sorry my little psa is done uh i'm gonna go ahead and introduce our guests today so on the podcast i have Haley jean penner Uh, the author of People You Follow, a memoir which has been described as funny, brilliant, coy, playful, and wise by Lena Dunham. Um, I think Haley is all of those things, and I think you will see that very soon. Um, In conversation with Haley is Catherine Borrell. Uh, I'm going to read their bios now so you get to know them a little bit better. Haley Jean Penner is a singer-songwriter who grew up sharing the stage with her father, renowned children's entertainer Fred Penner. She writes with some of the biggest artists and producers in the music industry. Her debut album and her memoir's namesake, People You Follow, have just released in September in concert with the book. She splits her time between Winnipeg and Los Angeles, and she's wearing an extremely cozy sweater. Haley, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm delighted. (laughs) I'm feeling like warmer just looking at you in that sweater. that's, That's my hope. That's my hope for us all. (laughs) <laughs> All right. And then in conversation with Haley today, we have Catherine Burrell. Catherine Burrell is a former journalist 
with the Canadian public broadcaster. She co-edited the interview section for The Believer magazine for a handful of pre-COVID years. Oh, those were the days. We remember those days. Um, she says she wants to say it was 2014 to 2017, but who knows anymore, right? Time is meaningless. It's made up. We know this now. Uh, Catherine has been writing television in Los Angeles for the last 10 years, and Los Angeles is where she is now and remains. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, thanks for having me. I, I, I remain here in Los Angeles forever. <laughs> you can't leave. You can't leave. Nope. You can nope. check out any time you like, but you can never leave. But, however, <laughs> you remain knew how prescient he was when he wrote those lyrics. Henley. <laughs> All right, so uh, Catherine, I think you're going to start us off with some questions so we can get a little context going, and then Haley's going to read from the book. Yes, that's what we're going to do. So Haley, um, hi. hi, thank you. Thanks for coming here into, into my space. Oh no, my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, so here's so we a, a lot of a lot of uh, what Maddie said is a lot of if not all of what Maddie said is true. Um, no, there's lots of lies in there. She she Maddie, she's such a prankster. She has to stop lying about authors and interviewers. But the just off what she said. So you grew up in a, um, the thing about your trajectory here is that like you grew up uh, as a creative person in the bloodline. And, but I do feel like your creative trajectory, you know, when you are in LA, you talk to a lot of other artists and creative people, and it's like fairly similar, just sort of on a macro level than, you know, a lot of people who end up in LA, which is you grew up in a medium sized city, Winnipeg, Manitoba, the navel of Canada. You decided that city could not contain you. So you moved to Toronto, the largest city in Canada. And then once you sang and cried and fucked and drank your way through that city, you came to Los Angeles for the reason we all move here, which is to be the very first person in history to make it in LA the second they step off the plane, get the LA money, and then use that money to make art and destroy all your enemies from your former life. Is that do I, have, can you co-sign that as a fact? Yeah, if you just send it over, I'll sign it. I can sign it in blood. It's, that's exactly right. <laughs> right. Um, and it's, I mean, I say all that because it's really where I want to start sort of that, that sort of, you know, like tender, aggrandized beginning uh, that we all have when we move to LA uh, and, and sort of get, get to the seed of who you are. And I'm sorry to use the word seed because I'm about to bring up your father, but um, it is noteworthy. And for the Americans who are, who are listening to this, I think it's really important to say that your father, Fred Penner, is kind of the Canadian Mr. Rogers. And can you give me like the Cliff Notes version of sort of like his, his um, iconic meaning in, our, in the country of Canada? I mean, really, Mr. Rogers is like a perfect a perfect example because he had a, he had a show on CBC for 14 years um, so and I think it was even every day I mean it started it started when I was born and the show started the year I was born so I really I don't know a world or I didn't know a world for 14 years without my dad like crawling through a log on a TV show and you know all of my friends at school being like your dad is a mythical magical creature that lives in my living room so yeah, he was just sort of like a, a, a regular name around town and in grocery stores and like just the guy, just the guy. And then you shared the stage with him like pretty early on. I feel like it's in all of your bios, like Haley Penner shared the stage with her father. Do you remember the first time that happened? 
You know what? It's funny. I don't, I don't really remember the first time. The, the strongest memories I have of sharing the stage with my dad um, are when I had an acapella quartet when I was like a teenager because obviously I was trying to be cool. So acapella, the way they did obviously so uh yeah me and three of my girlfriends were in this acapella or made this acapella quartet called the four corners and we toured with my dad so it was like our you know it was like a big break you know we're going across canada singing the cat came back behind it was huge we were huge (laughs) did you and like the reason i'm asking is because you know there's that like mythological story we tell ourselves you know that's sometimes real sometimes fabricated usually a combo of both and um, you know, like the moment I just knew I was going to be artist, singer, painter, etc. Um, I think that we need to mythologize ourselves in art because it's such a hard, stupid job sometimes. So, you know, it has to begin in myth. Um, and and so, you know, like I always think it's interesting when that I just knew I was going to be a singer, writer, artist moment also is in the bloodline, like with your dad. So, like, did you catch the bug in a moment? Did you catch the bug over years? Did you feel like there was a choice? I. I mean, I definitely had a choice. I wasn't, my parents weren't like stage parents in the way that I was like forced to do it, like forced into the family biz. But I definitely felt like it was just sort of a part of my upbringing in a way that I didn't really, I didn't seriously consider other things. Cause I was like, this is my life. This is what life can look like. You can be a performer and have a family and like you know, go home and go out on tour. It just felt, it felt like a normal job to me. It felt like a totally normal profession that I totally had the choice to do or, or not to do. Um, so I don't really have, I didn't really have that, aha, I'm going to do this moment. It was more like, this is what I have always done and I like it. So why, why stop doing it? Kind of. Right. Yeah. Almost, almost like a, cr- a craft approach more than a sort of like lightning bolt moment. Yeah, definitely not. Yeah, definitely not a lightning bolt. And then you moved away from obviously being a children's entertainer, like you wanted to, you wanted to entertain adults. And we will get into like the various ways in which you did entertain adults when you got to LA. But um, it, <laughs> it's like <laughs> the, the one of the one of the um, it's a like, I really loved your book. It starts out so like um, bracing and fresh and true and honest. Um, and then, and then, you know, within like 20 pages, it's just, uh, you're like, oh gosh, like she has, she has entered this, uh, this world, like the Alice's Wonderland is not so wonderful. It's also full of like, you know, men with ball gags in their mouths and stuff like that. And so, and I say that because I, you know, you got into this and into non-children's entertainment, um, a hallmark of your book is these very adult situations and and early in the book you have like one of those run-ins and when I say one of those run-ins it's like one of those run-ins that women particularly have a lot of like especially in creative fields and they're 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 confusing because it's like when they happen you're like did that just happen was that an accident um and that moment came early in your career and comes fairly early in the book and I was hoping that you would read that chapter for us I would love to Catherine thank you for saying yes (laughs) Yeah. No, thank you. Okay. (laughs) Called Famous Nameless Songwriter. Don't ask. As we sat on a Toronto streetcar inching along Queen Street in the thick of rush hour, my friend Jane turned to me and said, oh my God, I forgot to tell you, we got a session with him. He's down to write with us. I was 20, fresh to Toronto, and had just started songwriting with any shred of ambition. My goal as a songwriter was very small for a very long time, small and singular, reveal feelings to, insert band's name here, 
This session was not going to turn into another love letter to my teenage crush. This was a real opportunity. This was a big, famous songwriter willing to write with two brand new, no name, no reputation writers he'd never met before. Three days later, we were walking in a residential neighborhood, passing rows of homes so specific to Toronto, mammoth and deep set and nearly pressed against each other. Jane motioned to her left and said, ah, here we are. She reached for the doorknob as she continued. Also, he said we might have to help him with something before we write. It's like some kind of game that he and a childhood friend play sometimes. I didn't exactly get what he was saying, but we're supposed to just let ourselves in. We did as we were instructed and pushed open the door. Uh, hello? We said in unison, giggling uncomfortably like two little girls accidentally left alone in a department store overnight. A perfect balance of confusion and nervousness and excitement in our voices. We moved fearfully down a long, dark hallway, passing a shelf of awards and a wall of photos of musical icons. At the end of the hall, we noticed a light on in the kitchen and we heard the muffled sounds of someone in distress. We stepped around the corner and found our famous co-writer in his underwear, his legs and arms tied to a chair and his mouth stuffed with a bright red gag. When he saw us, he cried his muffled cry a bit louder the way 100% of girls getting rescued in movies do, adrenaline peaking in a surge of hope and panic at the prospect of being rescued or even worse, the possibility of being so close to freedom and somehow fucking it up. Without questioning what was going on, Jane walked around the back of the chair to start unraveling the fraying rope that bound his hands together. I pulled the red gag out of his mouth and freed his feet from the wooden chair legs. He gasped for air like a kid in a pageant over the top and perhaps with the hope of winning some sort of ribbon. We pulled the remaining rope from around his waist and he stood up. Oh, I'm gonna grab some water, he said, then disappeared up the stairs, dragging the rope still hooked around one ankle. Jane and I sat on the couch outside of the kitchen looking at each other like, wait, what? Our bodies spasm with silent laughter. I had started plucking Jane's guitar by the time he came back 20 minutes later, fully clothed, as if nothing had happened. He said, oh, that's nice, let's write to that. We tossed out lyrics and shaped verses and sculpted the chorus until a couple hours later we deemed it done. He led us back down the dark hallway to the door and said, that was fun, let's do it again sometime. Yeah. Let's do it again sometime. Let's do the whole thing again sometime. Exactly right, every part of it. So, I mean, I have a few questions. I have a few follow-up questions. Um, first of all, uh, just on a side note, I want—I only want musicians to ever read uh, books that they that they have or haven't written because, like, that was great. <laughs> that was that was a beautiful reading. Um, did you ever write with him again? No, never, never. I saw him a couple times, but never, never wrote. wrote. Did you have, did you want, did you like the song that you wrote with him? No, literally no memory of the song. I, it could be played to me and I could be, I, would, I wouldn't even know that it was the song we wrote that day, like no memory. Probably because you were traumatized and you've, yeah. your memory's gone into the black zone, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, obviously I read that and I was like, I, I, do, I do not like the quote, don't meet your idols because they'll always disappoint or whatever the quote is, because I don't actually think it applies when you're a creative. You kind of hope to meet your idols, I think, when you're a creative. And you also just like, as a curious person, it's always interesting, even if they disappoint you, because you want to know how they do. Yeah. Um, so skating like right over the fact that this man was definitely operating within the wheelhouse of the crime of indecent exposure to two young women. Um, <laughs> What's your take on him now, like as, as a person who's in her mid thirties and looks back on that instance? I mean, what's really bizarre is just how long 
I thought like, oh, what a strange, what a weird thing that happened, but not like a, oh, that's, that's what a criminal thing that just happened. Like it just became sort of like a funny party joke for years, you know, and, and it, it didn't really like my, my relationship to it has shifted so much. And I feel like it will continue to shift because now I think about, you know, my niece or something going into that situation and there's sort of nothing funny about it. I'm like, that's not funny. It's not funny at all. She's being put in an incredibly, like in an impossible position. It, it's just, yeah. So I, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's, it becomes less and less funny the older I get, I guess. And the more I have significant young women in my life. The, the, um, the complicity thing was such an interesting part of that. Cause it's like, if you leave him alone, what if someone had actually tied him up to a chair for real? And then so really, I remember that as, as a, because I, I was actually with, so my friend and I were at the session together and we really didn't know. We were like, maybe this is like, is he in trouble? And I think probably, I, I mean, I don't, that's not a, a kink of mine, you know, getting tied up and inviting young men over to untie me, but I could imagine some amount of that would have to be this sort of just the power over, these people who are, you've now ha gotten to let you out of this situation, it's just, it's an impossible position to put it, somebody in because you just, you just jump in, you jump to the rescue so fast. It leaves you no time to think, and I always think about how in those moments, and we're going to get to this later because you, you unfortunately have a few of these sort of escalating moments throughout, you know, your, your time in Los Angeles, um, which is a place where I think, you know, they, you can't warn anyone about what's going to happen when you're in the creative field in Los Angeles and you're going out to these meetings with people because it, it always takes on a different shade and it's so impossible to predict. But that, that thing that people say, which is like, well, you can always leave. Why didn't you just leave? That, that story is such a perfect example of like why you kind of can't <laughs> in those moments. And not only, like, it doesn't really occur to you, or at least many of the stories in this book, it doesn't even occur to me to leave. It's not like I'm, I'm repressing this voice in my head going, get out of here, get out of here. The voice in my head is going like, how can you manage this environment that you're in? Not, not run because the, uh, the other voice is like running is weird or, or it's not, but it doesn't even get to that point because the voice that says leave is not in the conversation. Yeah. There's a, there's a line from the next story, I think it's the story right after this one, um, uh, that it's about you as a kid. I thought it was a really well curated uh, bit of book curation. You as a kid at the public pool, you're baiting this little boy into saying what his dad does. And he's like, my dad puts on a suit and works at a bank. And you're like, you like flip your braid in this dramatic way, like a total asshole. You're just like, oh yeah, well my dad's Fred Penner, motherfucker. <laughs> and it's just this like incredible moment of like, I think you're six in the story or something. And it's just like that, un the understanding of the power of that as a six-year-old child is, is really big. And like the fact that you were understanding the looming presence of your father and how to use him that, that young. Um, I wondered about sort of his looming presence as this Canadian icon that made you feel protected in the adult world as mm -hmm. well. A world that was actually like not in his purview. Yeah. And so I, I, I wondered about like your relationship with like your father's protection and whether that was helpful or maybe created blind spots. <laughs> I just I, wonder. I think it created massive blind spots because I, I, I did sort of go into my life and certainly my life in, in Los Angeles feeling kind of um, 
uh, uh, feeling kind of, I always forget this word, like, like uh, uh, not immortal, like protected by everything. What is the word? It's gone. Uh, invincible. Thank you very much. That's the one. Um, you know, that I sort of had a, a deep belief always that I would be fine, that I'm always sort of taken care of. If I ever need something, you know, I could reach out. I have, I have family, you know, I'm not, I've, I've always felt like I'm going to be okay. But a part of that allowed me to go into really dysfunctional or really bad environments because I have a deep belief that like, oh, I'll get out okay. So that's just sort of progressively in Los Angeles led me to kind of worse and worse places. And then at a certain point you go like, oh, I don't actually have the power to leave this one as much as I, as I thought I did. Like I don't actually have the controls in my hands in the way that I thought I, I in the way that I thought I did. Yeah. Yeah. You get, you get stuck in Fred Penner's log and you're like, he always crawls through the log and you're like, why am I stuck in it forever? Why am I stuck in it forever? And you, you talk about like, and just like sort of saying what you were saying, like, you know, the love, the protection, and, and you talk about that in the book, the value you got from that. But there's a really interesting line, I think, in the story after where you also really valued your dad's fame and talent, which leads back sort of to the pool story as well. And, and, you know, it was like this overvaluation of those qualities that like brought you to LA and how dangerous that was, as you just said. Um, but I do want to talk about like the that, that, that decision to move to Los Angeles is always, it's always interesting. Like, when are you like, that's it, I'm out of this, I'm out of this popsicle stand, forget it. What's the 45 second story of what made you move to LA? Well, really, um, the reason I moved to LA was so not strategic. It was not a plan. I was basically living in Toronto and I met this manager. I had, I'd been reaching out to publishers kind of all over the world. And this one publisher in Toronto offered me just the worst deal ever. And this manager just happened to reach out to the same publisher kind of at the same time and said, do you have any new young um, songwriters? I'm, you know, I'm a manager trying to represent new writers and so they connected us and he was like it's the worst deal ever do not sign that deal my brother's a big writer in california let's send him some music and bring you out there and if he likes you you know we'll we'll sign you and you can stay so really i thought my move to la started in 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 like month-long intervals where i thought i'd be there for a month end of the month he's like no no, no stay two months and two months no stay three months and then they signed me to this to this uh, publishing deal and I stayed. And then, you know, you blink and 10 years has gone by. What were your expectations for yourself when you first got here or, you know, in, in month six or, you know, that weird, that weird thing that happens in LA where uh, time ceases to exist because every single day is just 75 degrees and sunny. What were your expectations? Yes, yeah, it's true. It's really true. Um, I mean, I definitely thought there's, there is a part of me that thought like, oh, I have made it. Like this is, this is the opportunity I've been waiting for. This is the opportunity that I knew, like I found like I got, I got discovered, you know, and the way that, the way that it happened with the manager and bringing me to LA and meeting the brother, it just all felt so perfect. And I am so addicted to a good story, which has also kept me in bad relationships that just started in an interesting way. Cause I'm like, no, the start is so, juicy and wonderful and I can't let that go because it seems so uh, meant to be or something and that's really how I felt about LA for for years that I was like this is just this is my story this is my thing um, and I really thought even when I had no reason to believe 
that they were the right place for me, I've still felt like they were. I felt like they were going to bring me to fame or to a, a lifelong career and success and whatever. I thought they were sort of the ticket. And I never really stopped thinking that until five years later. And what were the days like for you? Because I, I mean, you talk about it a little bit in the book, I mean, a lot, a lot in the book of just sort of like, you're in your car, you're dashing to, you know, Topanga Canyon to do a recording session here. Like what, what was an average, what was an average day like for you? Well, it, writer? it's really bizarre because it was at the beginning, it was there, they had one studio in North Hollywood and there was like a, a room at the end of the hall, which was essentially a closet, like fluorescent just the worst room ever and I had a little chair in there and I would like sit there and pretend to write or just try to look productive so that hopefully they would pull me into a session because there were several rooms sort of in this in this complex so I was either in that backspace or driving around to these sessions which is just the weirdest it's like the weirdest part of the songwriting world in LA and every time I come to Winnipeg people are just like what what are you talking about because it just makes no sense basically you know I would just get the name and address of a man I'd never met before and a time and then and like maybe a phone number and then I would just drive there you know some of them started at like eight and and this was also early in my career where I didn't realize you could just go like I don't want to do that session where you could say no I didn't realize I was allowed to do that yet. Um, and so I would just go to these homes and you like knock on a door and hope the guy is not a creep. And then you go in and you're like in a compound that need, you need to buzz out and buzz in. And uh, then you sit there for seven hours and write a song and then leave and maybe never see the guy again. Maybe never even get the song you recorded. You just kind of go in and come out and that's it. It's so weird. <laughs> And what you said, like in the middle of that answer was, um, I didn't realize I couldn't say no. And that like this whole, like there is so much of the early part of, of, a, of a creative career in this town where you just feel like if you say no, you'll die. Yeah. And you will not have a career and then that'll, that'll just be that. And oh. yeah, when, when did you realize that you could say no? Man, I mean, it, that's been, that's recently, like really in the last few years because the whole time I was with um I was in the camp that I talk about in the book uh the guy who I named Tal in the book would explicitly say that to me like there were times when I had a, a dinner planned or something and he'd go you know if you if you go to dinner and an opportunity comes in like I can't save it for you like I won't be able to like you'll miss it so and that just happened so often that eventually you just stop saying yes to anything else because you're so afraid. Like I remember canceling on friends when they were waiting in restaurants. Like I was not a good friend or loved one for that first chunk of time because I was like, guys, I, I this is my chance. I have to I have to be ready for it because what if I'm not? But the thing you don't realize until way later, and I'm talking like eight years in for me, seven years in for me, is like boundaries only make you more appealing <laughs> like they only it, they only up your price you know and then so it was really leaving that camp and being able to go like I don't want to do that session actually I'm going to leave for dinner at six actually I charge now for sessions actually whatever it is that people are like they just respect you they only respect you they only like you more you only get more opportunities and that just has blown my mind as as just something that I've learned
I know it, you you learn it you learn it after so many hemorrhaged years of energy like units of human energy that have just gone like to who and where and like disappeared into the ether. There's this line from uh, the movie Singles, like from 1991, that like is stuck in my brain forever, which is desperation is the world's worst cologne. And I always think about that with regards to like writing jobs. I'm just like, don't go and slaver all over someone's dick. No one wants that. Everyone wants like the. No. Think is gross. <laughs> like you're walking yes. away. Like, like it's not, let me let me positions for you and and you're and you're like and it's it's and then you're in control. It's it blows my mind. Yeah, it it really is mind blowing. It just takes that one takes so long to learn, or at least it that took ages for me to learn. I don't. I mean, the people who learn it early. I've got a couple of like female, like very strong, thirty-one-year-old friends. Who, when the, the, those people are like ten years younger than me, who are doing it now, and I'm like, oh my god, you just skipped eight levels on the video game immediately. Do it. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> but just like going, so that's and that's the thing. Like they don't warn you about that when you get here. You know, who? Because everyone's everyone's so in the in the fog in the fog of war that is this weird business. I mean, I'm making it sound far. More virtuous than it is, but it is a confusing yeah. time. They, they, they don't warn you about it, and it's not like it's not as if they don't warn you about the Harvey Weinstein's, although those definitely like exist in droves. But it's like it's the ones who are like one tenth Harvey Weinstein. They are nice to you. They tell you that you're good at your job. There is a sexual vibe, but it's not aggressive. And then they proceed to waste so much of your time. And sometimes that's really fun, but much of the time it ends really badly. And you mentioned the person who I feel is the dramaturgical antagonist of your book, Tal who I will hit with my car if I see him in Los Angeles. Um, tell me about Tal, because I feel like he represents that person that just dragged you into a zone where you oh. might have not come out okay. You know? Oh, I mean, he, he really is and was, I mean, I've had no contact with him for years at this point, but just the most, uh, I, like I, I really have uh, an infinite amount of compassion and empathy for myself in that moment because he's so captivating he's so charming he's so talented he's so bright and i really did feel like oh if this guy thinks i'm gonna make it i'm definitely i'm definitely gonna make it and and a part of his sort of bigness and his kind of salesmanship made me feel like i was i was accomplishing things when the reality is i really wasn't doing anything like i wasn't getting songs cut i wasn't my writing wasn't really getting better. Like nothing was really happening other than just hang, just hanging out. It was just so much hanging out, hanging out at the studio and being there and just being in the environment and being down and going to movies and like just being this little camp of people. But, you know, really then a couple of years goes by and you realize like, I've had a cut, I've put out one song. Like what, what is really happening here? Kind of nothing. Kind of nothing. And for the people who don't know the industry very well, like give us, you know, obviously without revealing his identity, although you can absolutely do that on this podcast if you'd like to. Um, but tell, tell me about like what his job was, what he did. I, he was also, you know, we don't have to name his band, but he had like a hit that I think got like 1.7 billion like views on YouTube. He was a big deal. Who, like, what was he in the ecosystem of the music industry? Well, really, when I when I moved to LA, he was just a songwriter and uh, and like a producer and a writer. So he and his sort of production partner, um, they were just kind of starting a, a publishing company. So I was their first sign as as a writer. They had, didn't have any others. And then 
it was just, it was very strange because he was mostly writing for other artists when I arrived. Um, and then I was there for maybe a year when he decided, you know what, I want to start a band. And he poached three Toronto musicians, brought them to LA, um, and like started this, started this band effectively like ending the publishing company that I was now signed to, or just like, it was not his focus anymore. And then they got this massive, massive first hit. So then he didn't really, he wasn't interested in like songwriting or producing or anything. Cause they immediately went on tour and were, were just sort of gone, um, you know, for, for kind of two straight years. So his, his title kind of changed throughout my time there. And I, I just didn't really know, I really didn't know what to do and I didn't know anybody else there. And it was, it was a very strange little time. And he, and he also, I mean, I, and I'm not, I'm, it's spoiler alert, but you, you write it uh, so heartbreakingly over the course of many stories. So it's, it's not a spoiler, but I mean, the relationship with him became sexual and very much like a war of attrition kind of way where suddenly you were, you were not living where you were living before you were like living in his apartment and he was also dating many people but he was also having sex with you and how and that all felt just like a slippery slope that you know I could not even see in the book it just was happening and I understand the phenomenon but d did you experience it that way just that slippery slopedness oh totally and and it also when I think about it too none of the moves like the the literal moves of where I was living were were like hey do you want to move in with me N they were all told to me they're like oh we're gonna move you into the house now or we're gonna move you out of the apartment you're gonna live in my second bedroom oh you're gonna do this it wasn't like hey what would you like would you like to live in my second bedroom would you like to live in the house with with all the guys like would you like for us to let you stay in your apartment like nothing and every time they sort of offered me a move or or gave me a move it was sort of like um it felt like points like it didn't feel like it felt like i was moving up the tier with every move even though you know one of the moves was into a closet in a in the house with a bunch of guys so they weren't really they weren't really um moving up the ladder moves necessarily but they felt like i was i was um accomplishing things that i needed to accomplish to get to some, you know, imaginary finish line that I didn't even know. I don't even have a picture of what that was. And I certainly didn't then, but it felt like achieving things. Is there, do you have one concrete achievement that came out of it or, or two or some? Or some. Yeah, there's definitely, there's, there's a few, there's, um, you know, like there was a bunch of songs I got sort of cut, but to be honest, like none of the, there's one artist that I ended up working with a lot that came from that camp who I'm really proud to have worked a lot with, but kind of, kind of everybody else. I was not that I wasn't happy to work with them, but they weren't like, you know, in the last few years, I feel so, I feel like every artist I work with is a real, it's like a real relationship and the songs we write are really connected. And I feel like I'm really doing something, not just in a factory where like a song of mine gets picked to go somewhere. Like there was a lot less personal relationships with the artists beforehand, um, which also was kind of held over my head that it's like, you're not ready for those, for those artist sessions. Like the, the, the first ones were just sort of pitch sessions where you write a song on your own and kind of hurl it at a artist from afar, which just has never worked for me. I can't, um, those are not the types of songs I write. Like I have way higher success right when I'm in a room with you and go like, how do you feel? What's up with you? And then we can just write a song about that 
because then of course you'll be invested in it rather than me just trying to guess, you know, from Winnipeg. It makes me realize that, I mean, again, this is sort of a cheesy thing to say, but the, like, your body is an instrument, especially if you're a musician and, and everything that you're describing with regards to like, you're going to go here, you're going to move here, you're going to go to this address, there's no phone number, uh, you're going to move into my place, oh, now we're having sex even though I have two other girlfriends, et cetera, et cetera. Like, it, it's, it's, all, it's all these moves to like significantly disembody you and to, and to separate you from your body as an instrument. And so I guess I, guess I want to know how you managed to survive considering that split had been made between your, your body and your work, which should have been completely braided up as one. Yeah, I mean, I think they were really, my, I was totally severed from, from myself, which I think when I go back and I listen to the music I was making at that time, especially for myself as an artist, it's just, I don't even know, I don't know what she's talking about. I don't, I don't know. Like this, I don't connect with the songs at all. Um, like I was just not in conversation with myself on a regular basis. I was just sort of going where I was put. And how did I, how did I survive it? Like, I actually don't, I, I don't really know. I think enough, enough kind of bad things happened in a row that I, I shared with people, which helped which which made it a lot harder to return to because once you start voicing the things yeah it becomes it becomes you have to get much better at lying if you're going to continue doing it um so i just kind of got got lucky in that sense and then also actually I, I forgot one of the really really pivotal changes was meeting my manager who uh so it stopped being his brother um this woman Maytov who is incredible and like the first kind of woman in my career in Los Angeles and she immediately um introduced me to this woman Lulu who became my attorney so all of a sudden I had these women these like women representing me and I sort of started explaining to them what had been going on and just the the outrage like the outrage and disappointment and anger and fury that came out of them really changed the course of my life in Los Angeles. Cause all of a sudden I thought, Oh, I could have, I can have another life here. Like this isn't the only option I have in this city. I wondered too, um, one of, one of the worst moments in your book is when I think it's nearing the end of the relationship with Tal when he wants to have sex and you say no, and you say no, and you say no. And then at one point you can't say no anymore. And so you just do it. And then at the end of that encounter, he gives you a lecture about what just happened. Can you, can you just, I, I don't want to keep telling your story. So what was that lecture that he gave you? Cause I thought those words were just um, eviscerating. It was, I mean, it really was one of the, one of the strangest moments of my life and I I went home r right after that night happened I went home and just wrote out exactly what had happened because it felt so I didn't even exactly understand it but I was like that was that was very something bad just happened um, but basically the, the thing he said to me at the end of, of our encounter was we were in the kitchen and he said say I didn't rape you and I and and it's so funny because in the I was like that was really bad that was really bad that didn't feel right and then it's like, he told me what it was. He told me what it was by ask, by, by telling me what he, it wasn't, you know, what I mean? by saying like, say, say that I didn't do the thing I know I just did. Yeah. 
And it just, that moment, just, I, 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 I almost started sobbing. I was like, don't do it. Don't just get out of this house, get out of this house. And he saw that I wasn't responding like, oh, it's fine. It wasn't that. Um, and he said, you know, if you really don't want a guy to touch you, just leave. You can just leave. Like the door is right there. You know, like you were saying no, but you're kind of saying yes. And you just sort of, like, I was just sort of frozen. And then, and then we went and we got frozen yogurt and came back. And, and then even that too, you're like, okay, well, I guess I'm on a, I guess we're on a date or something. And then I drove home and was just like, yeah, he didn't rape you. Say he didn't rape you. Say he didn't rape you. And still like, still talking about it now. I'm like, I can read it and go like, yeah, that's a rape. That is a, that is a story of a rape. And even when I say it, like, I can't, it just has not, they haven't like meshed together in a way yet. So I can just, I really, yeah, I have, I, it's, it's strange. It's a strange relationship to that one. It's a really hard thing because it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ, let me tell you why it's hard, Haley. That's not what I mean. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm over relating to it. Because it's, I, I, to say that word, to say that word out loud, like it was rape and then to say I was raped is, yeah. it is a moment I think where you just, you cleave in half and you go, okay, well that was my life from before when I wasn't raped and here's my new life as a rape victim. And that's, that's just a hard thing to want to, you know, integrate into your body as a phenomenon. And it's also, I think, because you sort of said earlier too, that we are sort of warned about the Harvey Weinsteins and about the like held down, forced, uh, uh, violent sexual assaults, but there just isn't as much conversation surrounding sub like subtlety with someone you've had a lot of consensual sex with, someone you have a relationship with, someone whose family you know, like rape that comes in within a relationship is so confusing because it's you have you like you do have or you have had sex with a person in the past and it's it's yeah it's a it's um it's a very hard thing to come to terms with or at least it has been for me absolutely yeah and it's i think that we're, we're getting better i think at like you know forming a language architecture around the more nuanced things but I, like and, and obviously the language helps words matter etc but uh the words just because of the existence of the words doesn't make the uh feeling any easier to absorb on a cellular level yeah or to even notice as it's happening exactly and i and i and so i wonder like you know do you talk about like then you go get frozen yogurt and that's that's a performance you know like you don't know you're performing but like you're like now i'm going to perform girlfriend role who's getting who's getting you know frozen yogurt with her boyfriend uh side note who just raped her but yeah and and it's like i i, I wonder because i i love the various definitions of performance like performance in terms of like human achievement and sport and stuff and then I, and sometimes i think like when it's when it's given like sometimes to women it's like well she's just performing and it's just that's a performance and it's dramatic and so on and so forth and it's like but when I think about you performing in that moment at the frozen yogurt stand, I'm like, that's a mighty performance. That's a powerful athletic performance of human will. And I guess like, I, I wonder about how all of the, you know, difficult, challenging criminal things that happened while you were in LA, like now as somebody who seems like you're far more integrated in understanding of what happened, like how have those things integrated into your performance as a literal performer of music and songwriter? I mean, it definitely, because I do think I was sort of in a constant state of performing for, you know, six years, the six years that I was in that, 
that camp because I was, I was constantly lying to somebody. I was constantly lying to some amount of people in my life, whether it were people in, in the camp or my family or just somebody. Like I was always lying. And I think the way that is translated to my post that world um, life is that lying makes me like sick now. Like, and, and in every way, in, in songwriting, in the writing of the book, like if I feel like I'm lying, it makes me like nauseous and sick. And, you know, like last year made me, even just having to approach it a couple times, made me ill, like made me physically sick. Um, so that in a way I think is, uh, yeah, sort of how that's informed my, my during that time life and, and my kind of post it. Was there a moment where you had your, your, your Jennifer Lopez in the movie enough, like enough moment, or was that a sort of a, a gradual thing? Cause I, you know, I, I want to say it was when Tal did that to you, but I, I kind of feel like it wasn't, it happened later. Yeah, it kind of wasn't. It, it's, um, it was close to that, but there was a couple more conversations um and it it really all surrounded when i was trying to get when when i was trying to get out of my publishing deal with them because then then his sort of uh power over me just didn't really hold weight anymore so we would be we were on a, a phone call that's in the book where where he's sort of like really quickly talking about how I can get out of the deal. And he's like, it's really easy. We're going to go and we're going to figure it out. Then you'll come over, you'll suck my dick and then we'll just go and it's going to be fine. Like it's going to be so quick and, and fine. And the way he did it when I was already kind of out the door legally, just sort of change. It wasn't a sort of like enough moment. It was just sort of like, oh, you're not, you actually don't have any power here anymore. And I just started realizing, I kind of started realizing that. Um, and that really is, I, I'm just so grateful to Lulu and Maytov because they are really the reason for that. Cause they were like, you don't need, we can get you a better deal with a company that cares about you more. You can stay in the country. Like all the fears that you had surrounding leaving this man and this camp are just not real. Like they, they're not real and we can just toss them away and build you a better life in this country. And if there is, if there is sucking dick in the fine print, we as lawyers will find that and we will, Break that from the contract. Break it out. <laughs> do um, do they want you to move forward in any way with, you know, pursuing some kind of action against this man? Who I'll, I'll just I'll hit with my car and I'll say it on the podcast, and the cops can come and arrest me when I do. <laughs> Perfect. Um, I mean, I know my my attorney is just like waiting for the day for me to be like go. Um, and especially because you also have to think, um, when you're, when you're collecting, uh, like proof of, of, uh, seedy behavior over years, like I didn't really realize why, but I've been keeping documentation of all my texts of like, I have several conversations recorded and I didn't really, in the moments I wasn't like, oh, I'm building a case. I was just like, these are things I might need later, maybe. Um, so I just have like, I literally have a folder. I'm like, come the fuck at me, man. I'm prepared. I've been prepared for 10 years. 
It's funny. I mean, I, 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 and I, I, I in no way want to take the focus off you, but I mean, I think one of the reasons, and, and just to be like to explain to the listeners, like why I am interviewing you, it's because we have a great mutual friend, and, and you asked, oh, who could interview me for my book? And he was like, oh, Burrell should do it. And, and one of the reasons I felt a great kinship with your book was that I was like, it was like reading about myself in another field. And I was like, don't go in the basement, Haley. It's, you're going to get murdered down there, you know? And so it was like thrilling and nauseating. And, and one of, one of the things that we very much have in common was that I was also in a workplace sexual assault situation back in Canada and uh, and it's just as you were talking it was occurring to me the the real audacity of and because I worked in radio and 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 so things are being recorded all the time in radio so you're a recording artist I worked in recording and these men who do it at work I'm like guys we're professional recorders yeah. don't do it <laughs> yeah don't do it don't do it Dude, it's a bad idea. Like, if, you know, I, I don't want any. I don't want anyone to do it. But like, you're gonna do it. Like, don't do it in the recording studio. <laughs> it's the worst place. The worst place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, I, I would like. I would like now to. We're gonna move away from the rape. The rape section. Uh, oh, the man. rape section of the podcast. Um, but you. I guess, I mean, there's lots of, well, I want to actually go into like one, one more man story who I found really interesting. And I felt like he was like a little bit of a crossfade just in terms of a, um, a presence in your life. And so there's this, there's this famous actor, uh, you call him Daniel in the book. And, and it seemed to be like, at least in the way that he treated you, which like seemed kind of okay. And then, and then suddenly it was very much not okay. It's, it seemed to be the clouds parting um, in terms of like your relationship with men and how they were not going to fix, you know, your quote unquote imperfect tummy as you keep referring to it in the book and your, and your brain that loves too much and keeps accepting people back into their lives when maybe they don't deserve to into your life when they don't deserve to be there. Like, am I right in saying that, that that, that encounter was kind of like starting to tip you into the direction of like, this is like, men are not going to solve this for me. Yeah. I mean, definitely. Cause that, that, that one really, it was so short, really. I mean, we only spent like f seven days together out of like a month that we were talking. So it was really short, but it just leveled me, but it's, it leveled me because, because of how I went into it, because I went into it thinking like, Oh, he is the answer. Like, this is the reason every bad thing has ever had to happen to me before because this guy is going to save me from everything, from myself, from Tal, from my whole uh, career in Los Angeles. Um, so I think coming out of that and realizing just how, how far that was from true and then revisiting it and realizing just how far from good it was definitely was like, you know, uh, continues to be kind of aha sort of I mean moment. It ended in a very uh, horrifyingly poetic way, kind of in in a right aid. And can you can you explain what happened there? Yeah. So we it was like our it was our last night in in New York or our last our last day, and we were leaving his place. And just as we left, he said, "Do you mind if we just take care of some business before we walk around today?" And I was like, "Yeah, no problem." Having no idea what he was talking about whatsoever, and we started walking. And I was like, "Where?" I just I couldn't figure it out. And I was just way too nervous or afraid of him to be like, where are we going? And then we went to a Rite Aid and we walked to the back and he bought me the morning after pill. 
and I just took it and I just, there was like a little, you know, Dixie cup water station. And I just took the pill and like immediately made a joke out of it. Like I was in like a, a, a some sort of facility and like proved to him that I swallowed it. And, and that was just kind of it. And then we walked back to his house and he ate a sandwich and didn't get up to, you know, say goodbye to me. And I never saw him again. Yeah. He had a lobster sandwich and didn't. Yeah, a lobster sandwich. <laughs> Ne- ne- never forget that it was a lobster. <laughs> um, yeah, it, that that was uh, that that felt like a a, a horrible, perfect hi- you know haiku of a men are not going to solve this problem for you because it yeah. ends with a it ends with the morning after pill and no goodbye at the door because he's too busy eating a lobster sandwich. Yeah, <laughs> you got to be your own morning after pill and your own lobster sandwich in your life, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I and actually that kind of that kind of brings me to uh, like the things that one must be I think after all of these like what the things one must be to oneself I think to com- to com- to start to complete the picture of oneself as a person which is my theory is um and this is going to sound patriarchal but I mean it sort of in the platonic ideal conceptual version one must be one's own dad <laughs> and oh gosh. absolutely and- I'm really done looking for a daddy. Done. I am my own dad. <laughs> your own dad. And, and I think it's nice that like you are you are currently in Winnipeg. You sort of like fled when COVID hit back to back to safe Canada with which obviously you are always invited back to my city, Los Angeles. <laughs> um, but you're in your yeah. dad's place now. Um, and and I guess I want to know like as you seem to be transitioning into becoming your own your own wonderful dad and crawling through Fred Penner's log to into out into the bright sunlight uh, of a set, um, like how is how is like all how are all of those experiences you know that you had in LA that you know formed this book? How is that all looking from a Canadian perspective, a perspective of you now being thirty five and no longer you know twenty seven? What's that looking like to you now? I mean, the thing that's really exciting to me about it is just um, not that it's, I can't imagine it's ever going to be fully easy, but the ease with which I'm finding um, just, just stating my boundaries and desires and hopes and like with friendships, with dating, with everything, like I'm, I'm just not finding it hard to be like, I don't like this. I don't want to do this. Let's do that. How about this? And that really has been the thing that I've struggled with you know, for my whole life thinking that um, I need to be available all the time or that I can't say no or that I can't say that I don't like a thing or that I don't want to do a thing. Um, and I think my my sort of post-book Winnipeg life right now, um, that's kind of the center of it. And with work too, you know, and with like Zoom sessions and stuff, like I just say no to stuff all the time because I just don't want to or I don't feel like it or I'd rather be with my niece or whatever. And that that has been incredibly liberating that it's just the 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 yeah what comes out of having really really clear boundaries yeah that you're not you're not just a again like a, a, a body that needs to work all the time that like you're yeah. you, can, in, you can inhale as well as exhale which i think is this is a town where you are called upon to exhale all of the time and yeah. and so infrequently does it give you or do you give yourself a chance to like breathe in which is very a very significant part of breathing and living it is. It really is. And also it, it doesn't like not breathing does not yield better results. Yeah. You know, 
it's like pretty like brain damaged results. Like our yeah, heart, brain damaged results. Heart damaged results. Like our hearts needed our our. Like it's it's super oxygen, super important. You heard it here. Important. important. <laughs> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna end on what is a very very annoying question, but given everything that we've talked about, uh, and I personally hate answering it, and I have a pocket answer for it that I give when people ask me this question. Oh my God, wait, let's see. If I have a pocket answer. Yeah, and you, pro I, you probably do, because I'm sure you've been asked it a lot. Um, what is your, in one line, or in a couple of lines, piece of advice for a person who's thinking, after COVID, I'm going to move to LA? Um, oh, wow. First of all, I've never been asked that question before. And the truth is, like, I wouldn't really, I wouldn't, I, I'd, I'd say go for it. I'd say, like, go for it learn the stuff you're gonna learn kind of the hard way probably but if I could like I've had these sorts of talks with young songwriters like a, a couple that a, a friend of mine wanted me to like meet a young songwriter he was working with and and kind of my big piece of advice was like you're allowed to say no and you're allowed to leave the studio anytime you want like if you're in a session that you don't feel comfortable in or that you just don't think you're you're writing well or for any reason at all you can leave. You can leave 15 minutes into it. That is a totally made up thing that they tell you or that you tell yourself. You do not have to stay in a room for seven hours. You can go in and say, hey guys, I'm gonna ha I'm, I'm, I have dinner plans at five. You know, And that, that is a thing that I think I, I would have loved to know as, as a new person to LA that you do not have to sit in a room with a stranger for eight hours. You absolutely don't. You can leave whenever you want for any reason at all and you'll still be successful. You're okay. <laughs> That's a great piece of advice. That is, thank you so much for your candor and talking to me today. Oh, my pleasure, I just had the best time ever and it's so dark here now. Nobody can see yeah. us, but I'm in the dark. I watched, yeah, for, I mean, we're, everyone's listening, but like night fell as, as yeah. Haley was talking and it's, uh, it was very dramatic, like as we got into the dark heart of the, uh, the interview. It became yeah. night. I liked it. Uh, what is that called? Pathetic fallacy? <laughs> anyway, thanks. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Oh my gosh, what a great conversation. And um, this memoir sounds fantastic. Uh, everybody better get a copy of People You Follow. You should buy from Skylight if you heard about it here. I mean, you have to, right? You have to. <laughs> um, well, Thank you so much, Haley, and thank you, Catherine, for making the time for this conversation today. I really enjoyed listening. Um, I could honestly like sit here and listen to your LA stories all night. I, you know, I would love to hear good LA stories as well, but the bad ones are also very satisfying. <laughs> it's a complex place. <laughs> um, yes. Is there anything else uh, either of you would like to say or plug before we say our goodbyes? I'm no. I am. I uh, I'm working on a CW show called Kung Fu, and it's coming out in uh, in 2021. And people should watch it. Ooh, I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> All right, we'll check that out. And Haley, anything from you? Oh no, just you know, I'm gonna have dinner shortly. That's gonna be nice. I'm plugging that. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> All right. Well, take care, both of you. Thanks again, and uh, I hope we can have you in person under the skylight someday soon. soon. Thank okay. you so much. All right. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. 
Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.